Some of you who may be Carolina Panther fans may remember the player Rod Smart a few years ago. He was the uh, special teams man, a return kickoff man who ran back uh, kickoff 100 yards for a touchdown, tied the team record uh, for yards gained and touchdown. And, but his real claim to fame was for a brief while, while he was a part of the defunct XFL league, he wore a jersey in which he could write his own uh, name. You know, they didn't just put Rod Smart. He wrote his own name, uh, title on the back of the shirts. And the claim to fame was he had on the back of his shirt the phrase, He hate me. Every time he was referred to a team uh, in a game, he said, oh, This is the one that used to wear, wore, He hate me, Rod Smart. Rod, he hate me smart. And, and so that was how he came to be known. And, and so he would be interviewed and, and asked, where did you come up with this, this phrase, this nickname that you got for yourself? And, and so I want to quote for you uh, his explanation of that phrase. Uh, he, said, uh, he said, basically, my brother's my opponent. And after I win, he's going to hate me. And then he went on to explain. He says, it is what it is. It's a saying I was saying when I felt something wasn't going my way. For example, when I was on the squad in Vegas and coach was putting other guys in, if I, if I felt I'm better than them, you know, hey, he hate me. See what I'm saying? Give me a chance. That's all I ask. It came from the heart within the way I felt. And so it became his uh, phrase to explain all the bad things that would happen to him and as well as his motto. He says, I want to play in such a way that everyone hates me. And so uh, I thought as I was reading Genesis 37, which is what we're going to be studying this morning as we're following through the book of Genesis, as I was reading the life of Joseph, you know, we kind of know him as the coat of many colors. He's the guy, you know, with the rainbow coat. But I thought, you know, if he had a jersey, he ought to put that, he hate me, on his jersey because it fits. You'll, you'll read today in uh, Genesis 37 how many times he was hated by his brothers. And then all the bad things would happen to Joseph. And I thought, man, if Joseph had the mentality Rod Smart, he'd be saying he hate me all the time. Referring to God, referring to his brothers, referring to Potiphar, referring to everybody, the world. He hates me. But that wasn't Joseph's attitude at all. He didn't have a victim mentality. Uh, he blossomed wherever he was placed. Even in prison, falsely accused. He blossomed there. And so it was not a victim mentality at all. But, you know, he could have worn the jersey and it would have fit, fit him well. And so we're going to go to this chapter. We're, we're kind of changing gears. As we've gone through and looked at this book chapter by chapter, we need to keep in mind that the main point of the book of Genesis is one to explain the problem of sin, how it is, and we'll find snippets demonstrating the effect of sin. We'll see that today in Genesis 37, a, a tragic picture of sin in the, in the world. But even more to the point of the book of Genesis is the story of a redeemer. Genesis 3.15, God promised there would be a redeemer. And we find the promises go throughout and he says it's going to come of man. He's going to, he's going to make a line. He's going to produce from that line one who would be a blessing to the nations. And that was a promise he gave to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob many times over. And he said it would be in Jacob's line of his heritage that there would be a Messiah that would come. And so the book of Genesis is all telling that story. And as we come to verse 2, we'll find a phrase, these are the generations of. That's the tenth time we've seen that phrase. And we've learned as we study this together that this was a literary device the author used to segment the book. 
They didn't have the convenient chapters. All right. Moses didn't say turn to 37. Uh, but he said maybe turn to the generations of Jacob. And they would have had a good idea about what the, where that was at in the story. And so this is the final segment. And really Joseph, his son, be, takes center stage. Uh, and in fact, all of the book of, of Genesis, uh, a quarter of the book of Genesis is about the character Joseph. Think about that. There's a lot of stuff covered, like the creation of the world, uh, destruction of the world, Sodom, Gomorrah, Adam, I mean, and Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob, all these characters. Joseph takes the most uh, of that book. And so this is our first chapter uh, that we're going to look at that focuses on the character of Joseph, but really all of his sons, Jacob's sons, but especially Joseph. Uh, we're going to see a tragic picture of sin, and we're going to learn uh, three important truths about sin as we read this together, as we follow the story. It is a fascinating story, okay? Uh, it's got all the ingredients of a good story. In fact, movies have been made uh, about this story. And uh, for those who uh, don't know the entirety of the story, uh, I'll kind of fill in uh, briefly as we finish reading so you'll know what happens and it kind of fits in. I don't want to ruin the story for you, but uh, nonetheless, let's do that. And we're going to read this together. If we'll stand as we read this in honor of this word of God, you read silently as I read aloud to you, Genesis 37. I'm going to start with verse 2. These are the generations of Jacob, Joseph. Being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers... They hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I've dreamed. And behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and, and told it to his brothers and said, behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall I, your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pastor their flocks, father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pastoring the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. And so he said to him, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem and a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, what are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers. He said, tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they have gone away for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him. And we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to him, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to his father. 
So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty and there was no water in it. And they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brothers and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let our not hand be upon him. For he are his brother, our own flesh, and his brothers listened to him. The Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph and lifted him out of the pit. Sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes. Returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone. And I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat, dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we found. Please identify whether it's your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments, put sackcloth on his loins, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. You may be seated. If you will, put your bulletin over chapter 38, chapter 39, because I know you're going to be trying to read that and figure what is he going to be talking about for the next two weeks. Just kind of hold off, read it when you get home. But in short, the rest of the story, Joseph indeed served Potiphar as a slave. Uh, Potiphar's wife thought he was very attractive and tried to seduce him, and Joseph refused. Uh, Potiphar's wife lied about him. Potiphar believed it, put him in prison. There he reigned for a number of years until through dreams and interpretation of dreams, uh, he was brought to the intention of Pharaoh and Pharaoh had a, a dream. Joseph was brought in to interpret the dream. God used that moment to put Joseph in a powerful position as a prime minister, essentially second command over Egypt. Famine indeed incurred according to the dream that was given to, Potiphar, uh, to Pharaoh and uh, the family in Canaan and Hebron needed some, some food, heard there's food in Egypt, was brought before him, had a bow before Joseph. It came to bear who he was after 22-some uh, years, and there was a reunion of sorts. Okay? That's the story in a nutshell. But, you know, Joseph didn't have that luxury back then. The guys didn't have the luxury back then. So let's kind of look at the story as it is and learn as we go. First of all, we see in verse 2, he's a young man. He's 17. He is the son of Rachel. Rachel was the one most loved by Jacob. You remember that whole story where God, uh, Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah? Well, we find that not only did he love Rachel more than Leah, he loved Rachel's sons more than Leah's sons. Jacob had four wives, Rachel, Leah, and then the, hand, the servants came in, Bilhah and Zilpah uh, came in. And, and so four wives with all of their children uh, all together. Um, I think that as we read Jacob's life and his family... There are a lot of lessons applicable to families today. No, we don't practice polygamy, but we do have a practice where families of different uh, fathers or different wives come together. It's a Brady Bunch all over America in some sorts. And, and so many of you today perhaps come from a family or in a family where you've got stepbrothers and stepsisters and uh, you have children that are stepbrothers and stepsisters and, and you deal with the tensions that are there. 
I think that when we look at Jacob's family, we'll find a lot of common points that occur when you've got families of, of different spouses together and the tensions, the jealousies, the competition that often come in those situations. And Jacob is, is dealing with all that. I, Sam Parker reminded me of a song uh, from Hee Haw uh, not too long ago uh, where uh, two came together and had children uh, from previous marriages and they had their own children. And the, the father was singing to the mother, he says, you know, <laughs> your children and my children are beating up our children, you know. And so that's kind of the scenario you've got right here with Joseph uh, being, well, uh, well, beat up uh, by, by the brothers. And so that's where they're at in verse 2. But we notice something, that Joseph, though 17, was passionate the flock with his brothers, uh, and specifically the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, uh, and a bad report's given to them by Joseph. This language seems to apply as well as the coat that's given by Jacob, that not only was he the youngest son, but he may have been the youngest son that had authority over the flocks, and consequently authority over his older brothers. And so there was a point of some serious jealousy here that this young whippersnapper is telling the older brothers what to do and telling on them all the time about the bad things that are going on. So he's not winning a lot of friends among his brothers. And so verse 3 gives even more explanation. In fact, verses all the way through verse 11 kind of builds an argument why the brothers do what they do. So far, every time the brothers come into the, the narrative, it's not been good. Bad things have occurred. I mean, sleeping with the father's wife, wiping out cities, uh, all kinds of bad stuff are occurring. And so we're explanations explaining as the forefathers of the Israelite nation. And so uh, we find that in verse 3, Joseph was loved more by Israel. Remember, this is name change. Jacob turned to Israel, but he still has his old ways of favoritism. And he, and he makes a robe of many colors because he's the son of his old age. Uh, he's up in years. He does have a younger son, Benjamin. It could imply that uh, Joseph had maturity in his young years. Uh, that he was as an old person in his young years. That he had uh, marks of wisdom, of leadership that could have been there. And that could grammatically be implied in this passage as well. But nonetheless, the tension is given here. And we think, well, what's the big deal about this coat? Well, we think of the rainbow coat. I don't think it probably looked like the rainbow coat. Uh, it may have been colorful, but it was more a coat of distinction. In fact, one way of translating could be a coat with long sleeves. I thought, well, that's, what's the big deal about that? Well, back then, uh, if you were working, you would have a sleeveless coat and a coat that would come to your knees. Uh, what Joseph seems to have is a coat that comes all the way down to his wrist as well as down to his ankles. What's the point? Well, have you ever tried running in a coat like that? Uh, you don't run well. You don't work well in a coat like that. And that's the point. He's not working the fields. The brothers are. So basically, in, in common vernacular today, Joseph was given a white-collar job and the white-collar suit. The brothers were given a blue-collar job with a blue-collar attire. And the status was there, and all the brothers recognized this guy is being elevated above us in our own family because our dad loves him more. Now, what's the big deal? A little bit of favoritism? I mean, he's an old man. He's got a young son. He makes him feel young. What's, what's the problem with doting on him a little bit more than all the others? You need to understand that favoritism is sin. 
Favoritism is a sin. In fact, the Bible tells us that as believers in the book of James, that we are not to favor uh, the rich over the poor. Even more so, especially in our own family, we are not to have favoritism that we uh, love somebody and exalt them and dote on them to the point of harming someone else. And then our exuberance in loving this one, we hate the others. Well, they, well, that's really not that big a deal, is it? Here's the first truth about sin that we're going to learn. That sin will grow in its intensity and in its number. Just note, it started with favoritism toward his wife, favoritism toward his son, and we're going to watch this thing grow in number and intensity. We, um, <laughs> growing up, my, I go to my uh, grandparents, I, they had a bunch of cats. I, I have a love-hate relationship with cats. Uh, I know some of you love cats. I mean, that's your favorite thing. I, I love to hate cats. Um, and they sense that. I don't know what it is about cats but if you want the cat to come, they won't come. But if you want the cat to be far away, man, they crawl on your lap. And I'll visit folks, and cats will crawl on me. I was visiting the uh, Miss Rader Richardson not too long ago, and I was visiting uh, their family, Tammy and, and Greg, and they've got a cat, a pretty little cat. And uh, But, you know, I don't really want the cat on me, but the cat senses that. And so the cat's not just crawling on my lap, he's on my shoulders, I'm sitting on the couch, you know, trying to be polite, and this cat's right there. The cat proceeds to chew my hair. Like, you know, what is it about cats? We've got this love-hate relationship with cats. And, and, and growing up, I go to my grandparents' house, and they had a farm in Johnston County. And, and uh, when you have cats in the farm, you don't have them just as pets. They're utilitarian. They're, they're tools, you know. And uh, you don't keep cats inside. They had eight kids. The house was full. You know, you keep the cats outside and, and you go and I'd visit one time. There'd be like one cat, you know, and just see one cat. I'd, I'd visit a few weeks later and there'd be like six cats. I'm like, where did all these six cats come from? They came from this one cat. How did that happen? How the cat found a partner, you know, and, and they, you know, and what happens is you keep on going before long. You go out and the cats are everywhere. You come out the yard and they just scatter everywhere. I'm like, man, these cats are taking over. And what would happen? That first little cat, you know, would let you pet him. You know, would, would you know, act like a pet. But man, time that seventh cat came around, you do good to see him. And if you touch them, they tear you up. They claw you up. They grow in a, in a more wild sense. I'm, I'm just telling you, this is how it is out, in, you know, when you're on the farm. And this is what cats would do. But you know what? I found that sin's kind of like that. You've got a, you've got a sin. You think, well, what's the harm? I kind of like this sin. It's, it's, it's cute, it's cuddly, it, it makes me feel good. But listen, that little attitude or that little uh, action that you do that you think it's no big deal, it just brings comfort, doesn't hurt anybody, uh, it's just me. It's going to grow, it won't stop, and it will multiply in your life, and it will grow in intensity. Watch it happen right here. Alright, so we've got favoritism. They see this. This uh, uh, coat that he makes. And, and we see this phrase repeated. Verse 4. They hated him. They couldn't speak peacefully to him. They're at the point. Have you ever been to that point where you just got started hard feelings against this person? You don't even want to talk to them. Because you can't say any good word. And it's just going to get you all upset and riled. Alright. That's where they're at. But it gets worse. You know it could get worse. It does. Verse 5. They're at that state. But then they... Hated him even more. 
And you see it repeated. Hated him even more. Verse 8. When they hear about this dream. And finally they get to the point in verse 11. And his brothers were jealous of him. Did you know that jealousy is hate? Jealousy is hate. They have gone to the point. It's growing in degrees. It's like the fourth degree. And now it's at the state of jealousy. And, and Jesus referred to this in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, look, you know, you say you're no murderer, you're not a murderer, but don't you know that when you have hatred in your heart, you're murdering them? And murder is just a matter of time and opportunity. And that's what happens here. It starts in the heart and grows in its intensity to the point uh, where they are eventually have a conspiracy plan. And so... They're dealing with jealousy. You need to understand that when you're jealous, you're hating. When someone talks about their, their many accomplishments, how do you deal with that? When others show you their new car, their new boat, their new computer, their, their new iPhone, how do you deal with that? When someone tells you about a large inheritance that they received, when they, when they give you or tell you about an award, a recognition, or promotion that you felt you deserved, when someone talks about their accomplishment in an area where you want to excel, when, other, when you hear others talk about the vacation that you can't afford... Be careful. Seeds of hate can grow right there. It can destroy a friendship and a family uh, so quickly. So quickly. Proverbs 14.30 says, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. James 3.16, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. All right, verse 11 builds the case. They've got motive. If we were investigating a murder, we'd say, who's got motive? All the brothers got motive. Well, did they have an opportunity? Well, that's where verse 12 comes in. Opportunity is given right here before the brothers. Now, there is some fault here that we can put on Joseph's life. I mean, he's talking about these dreams. God's given these dreams. And he shares it with his brothers. Why did he share it with his brothers? The Bible doesn't tell us why, but it has the effect of, oh, you think you're better than us. They're, they see what he's saying, that they're going to bow down. He's building sheaves of the pile of, 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 of wheat, and his pile bows down to his pile that he makes. The sun, moon, and stars, and they all bow down to him. And you can imagine that, uh, where they say, what, what's it with it, with you? Listen, we can do the same. We get around others, and we think we're better than others because we go to church we go around others and we think we're better than others because i studied bible i mean i know the Bible. you don't even know the bible that is a holier than thou attitude that joseph seems to be exhibiting and we can do the same thing we are not given these things the dream was not given to joseph for joseph to feel better about his brothers we find out later that the dreams were given to joseph so he can survive what's about to happen to him why is the word of god given to us so that we can survive the world that we're going through why do we have church not so that we can feel better than everyone else but that we can go somewhere and survive the world that we're going through to be encouraged and to share the gospel with others not so that we can make others feel bad because you have the things of God, because you've been forgiven, what's the difference between you and someone else? Nothing other than the fact that you've asked God to forgive you, and he has. Beware that we don't follow the same suit that Joseph is going in here with the holier-than-thou attitude. Now, verse 12, brothers are doing their jobs. but Something catches our attention, verse 12. His brothers went to pasture their flocks, father's flock near Shechem. 
Now, if you've been studying the Bible with us, that rings some bells. Shechem. That was a place where a few years ago, their family was there. The sister, Dina, was raped by a prince of Shechem. And so the brothers come in and have a plan. Simeon and Levi. They tell them, I'll tell you what, guys. If, if all you guys in this city will get circumcised, we'll accept you and you'll accept us and we can intermarry. And so they said, okay, sounds good. And once being circumcised in the very weakness of, of healing from that, Simeon and Levi come in and kill all the men of Shechem. Genocide. And all the brothers come in behind him and whoop up and get the loot. And the women and children. Devastating things occurred in Shechem. And we're thinking, man, God used these people? And so when the Bible talks about these going to Shechem, it rings some bells, reminds us. Joseph's brothers are not the kind of guys that you should feel safe around. And here they come. He's going about uh, 50 miles north of Hebron, going up to Shechem. And you can't find them. And we see God's kind of working. He sets up a divine appointment because these guys going on to Dathan, he didn't know about it. And But nonetheless, he comes across a man who just happened to be around his brothers, who just happened to hear his brothers uh, say, oh, we're going to Dothan. Isn't it amazing how God kind of worked and, and created this, this moment where Joseph can be with the brothers and Joseph could be betrayed by his brothers? It's, it's interesting how that happened. And by the way, you, you don't see Joseph asking or introducing himself. Asking for the sons of Jacob because every man knew who the sons of Jacob were in that area. Said, yeah, we know where they went. We keep track on them. (laughs) They went up to Dothan. And so he goes on another 15 miles up north and notice their reaction when they see him. You see in verse 9, they see him in verse 18 from afar and they conspire against him. Verse 9, hear that sarcasm? Here comes the dreamer. Oh, dream weaver. You know, he's just like, I'm going to get you now. It's our time. And so they said, verse 20, let's kill him. Let's throw him into the pits. Let's create a lie. Tell our dad he was eaten by animals. Let's see what happens to his dreams now. Reuben heard it. He has some responsibility being the oldest son. He's in the doghouse with his dad because he made... Joseph, Jacob's wife, like his wife, that'll do it, all right? He is in the doghouse bad. And so he's thinking, all right, how can I improve my standing with dad? And he says, I'm going to find a way to rescue Joseph. And, and so he comes up with this alternate plan. I, let's, not, let's not kill him. Let's just throw him in this pit. Let him starve. That'd be fine. Oh, guys, are, okay, that sounds great. You know, they're, they're with that. They're okay with that. And Reuben's thinking, all the while, I'm going to come back and rescue him. But that doesn't happen. And Joseph doesn't know that. He's thinking, Reuben, you know, you're not helping me here. Uh, and so, what's the first thing to do? They strip him, verse 23, they strip him of his robe, the robe in many colors, that symbol of favoritism, that symbol of love. Isn't it interesting how the sin has grown in number and intensity Now they're trying to kill his brother. And so they put him in the pit. Now, it's a cistern uh, in that day and time. If you can imagine, it's not like a well that you would think in the dirt. In that area, they would have hillsides of rock. And they would have hewn out areas or natural cavities in these rock sides. Kind of a pear-shaped hole. 
coming up to a narrow opening, sometimes just a foot across, sometimes three feet across. And they would have and the sides of the rock channels uh, hewn out so that the rainwater would, would flow into this. Uh, and then they would cover this up with a huge rock so nothing would defile their source of water. But something has happened to this cistern. It's cracked something. Water is no longer there. And you can imagine if just being in this narrow hole uh, entrance and then it opens up and it's dark. And all you see is maybe a one to three foot uh, light ahead on top. And that's where they put them. You can imagine, if I was anything like Joseph and Joseph was anything like me, I'm screaming at the top of my lungs. I'm claustrophobic, you know, all that kind of stuff. This is not good. And so there's pleading going on. But notice what they do. Verse 25. Well, put them in the pit. Then they sat down to eat. (laughs) Sat down to eat. Can you imagine that? Hey, Reuben, can you pass the salt over there? Hey, let me out! I need mercy, please! Oh, how about some ketchup over there? You know, and that, there's a callousness here. Oh, we just, you know, getting rid of our brother, no big deal. We've killed others before. Have me some of that mutton over there. There is a callousness. There is a, how, do, how is it that sin grows in intensity and number? Because what happens is as we get comfortable with that little bad sin, we think it's no big deal, no harm has come, nothing's happened, I can do it again, I can do it again, and there is a callousness that grows. And before long, we have to go to another level to have that same conviction that we once experienced. And so here they are, eating mutton, by the pit. Just an interesting note. This is the last time they'd eat a meal in Joseph's presence for 22 some years. The next time it would happen, it wouldn't be done by a pit. It'd be done in Joseph's palace. I wonder when it came to their attention who they were eating with if they remember the last meal they had. In fact, Genesis Chapter 42 refers to that in verse 21. The brothers are referring and thinking back on this moment. And they were meeting, remembering the pleas of despair on Joseph's lips as he cried out. Well, they're eating. As they're eating, they're seeing this tribe of Ishmaelites coming in, slave trade. And think, hey, you know what? Drew just got the big idea of like, you know, this is kind of a messy deal. I don't know if I want this on my conscience. He is, after all, brother. Maybe we should just sell them. All right. Now, how many of you brothers have to thought that for your siblings? All right. This guy actually does it. He sells his brother. And they sell him for 20 shekels of silver, which seems to be the going rate for a young man. The Bible says later on that he, not only is he 17, the Bible says he's comely in figure. In other words, he is, he is well built, handsome man. He can do a lot of work. And we find out he's got a great head on his shoulders. And so he, he has a good price of 20 shekels of silver. And it some, kind of reminds us a little bit about what happens to Jesus and, and how he's betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. And so they sell him and they take him to Egypt. Reuben returns, says, what's happened? He sees the horror of it all. He can't rescue his brother anymore. And so they say, what am I going to say to dad? And they said, well, here's the plan. We'll get some, get an animal. We'll kill a goat. And we'll put the blood on this torn garment that we stripped from him. Interesting. They use a goat. They kill a goat to deceive Jacob. <laughs> you remember the story from a while back? 
how Jacob deceived his dad and he had to kill a goat to do the same. It's coming back. It's coming back to Jacob in ways he never would have dreamed. And so they, they produce the garment and, and you notice how slick they are. They never actually lie to their dad. They said, hey, look at this garment we found. Is this Joseph's? It looks like his. And they let Jacob kind of fill in the rest. And they let him run. And notice in verse 35, he says, I can't be comforted. And he makes a commitment. He makes a commitment. For the rest of my life, I'm going to mourn my son. I'm never, I commit here and now, I will never get over this. (laughs) Someday he'll look back on that commitment and realize I've wasted my life. But nonetheless, that's his commitment. His His father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him to Egypt, Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, and the captain of the guard. Now, what's another lesson about sin here? Here's this. Sin will ultimately accomplish the opposite effect of your desire. It will ultimately accomplish the opposite desired effect. Consider Jacob. He was doting on a son. Favoritism. Why? Because it comforted his heart to have little Jacob, or Joseph running around 17-year-old, making him feel young, making him feel good. Hey, I don't mind if I give him a little extra coat here. What's the harm? Oh, yeah, the brothers will understand. You know, I love him more. He was comforting his own heart. Isn't it interesting that in that very action that ultimately led to the breaking of his heart for his life? Here the brothers were thinking, you know what, this, this Joseph's getting too high and mighty. He's going to be ruler of us. He's got all these dreams. That's not going to happen. Let's find a way to make sure he doesn't rule over us. Let's sell him to these Ishmaelites into slavery. <laughs> they had no way of knowing. But in their actions, the very opposite occurred. Yes, one day they would bow down to Joseph in Egypt. Because they did sell him into slavery. You need to understand that there is a a satisfaction. There is a a desire in our heart. When we sin and disobey God, it's done for a reason. There's some craving that we're trying to satisfy in our life. And so we go to it thinking this will do it. And we'll find that there is a a satisfaction that occurs. There is a a happiness that lingers from this. But I'm going to tell you that ultimately it will sour in your heart and life. Just as a little example of something we laugh about, but it's sin nonetheless. It's my, my thing with chocolate. I like chocolate. I, I think I could say I crave chocolate from time to time. Um, I love M&M's. I like the milk chocolate ones because I don't want the peanuts to mess it up. But I like peanut M&M's because every once in a while you get that peanut M&M with no peanut. And it's just like, man, that's a lot of chocolate. Just, you know... I like that. And Donnie Homequest, he, I tell you, he gave me a jar of, of M&M's one time, big old jar. And y'all don't do this. I don't need it, okay? But he gave me a big jar. And I'm going to tell you, I sinned multiple times with that jar. Because I'd have that in my office. I'm sitting there studying, reading, whatever, doing. And you know, I was like, man, I'm, you know, just. I don't eat M&M's because I'm hungry. You know, you don't eat dessert because you're hungry, do you? I mean, you just ate a meal. You do it because you have a craving for that sweet taste. And. 
And what happens, I found that it's a comfort food. It's not nutrition. It, it's, it's not because I'm hungry. It's just it makes me feel good to eat that thing. But, you know, I can't stop until it's gone, which is why that big job was a problem. And I will, at the end of that time, feel miserable. It's like, man, you know, I did this to feel good, but now I don't, I don't feel good anymore. I'm weak, I'm tired. My stomach's doing things that I'm just not used to. You know, this isn't good. And that's just an example. And that's sin. How much more so the other areas of our life where we have a craving where maybe folks will like me more if I do this. Or, or maybe I'll feel better about my life and I'll feel more important, more valued if I do this. Or you know what, a little bit of pleasure here won't be a, a big deal. But listen, if you could take the long view of it, you'd realize where it'd take you. I love the commercial that's going out now in regards to smoking where, where it talks about this young lady and, and why she was smoking to begin with and, and having to be cool. And then it shows her to now where, you, where she can't even talk. She's having to talk through a machine and she says, I wish I could hear my own voice again. I think, you know, that's the type of picture we need to see from time to time. Yeah, I've got a lot of buddies and they show me pictures and they think, oh, you know, drinking is just a wonderful thing. It's great fun. But you know what? I wish they could visit with me sometime when I visit someone who got into the partying lifestyle and drinking and never stopped. And now they're 50 and they look like they're 80 and, and they're bloated and their kidneys don't work and they got cirrhosis of liver and their mind's addled half the time. I think, oh, that's a lot of fun. But we don't see that. We just see the short cravings. That satisfy. But you need to understand. That when you do something contrary to what God asked. He asked you for a reason. And he is all wise. And he knows the long view. And he says look this is the prescription for life. Follow my lead. This reflects my character. If you do things contrary to my character. Though there is a momentary pleasure. There will be an ultimate effect that is opposite what you're wanting. We see that in Jacob. We see that in the brothers. But listen, I want to I wanna just show you this one last truth about this story. Not only will sin grow a number in its intensity, and not only will sin ultimately accomplish the desire, opposite desired effect, but sin, listen, sin can be used by God to accomplish His purposes. You may look at your life and you're thinking, I see now I've got a lot of mistakes in my life. And I'm dealing with it. I'm going to pay for this for a long time. But listen, when you turn your heart to God, and you say, God, you know what? You know my past. I'm I'm ashamed of some of these things. Father, forgive me. You will be amazed at what God can do through your past actions that were evil and intent in action are evil that someone else did towards you. Those are the hardest to bear, the sins of others towards you. But God can take that. And you'll say, you know what, I never wish to relive that experience again, but I've seen what God can do, and I've been amazed. Let me share with you what happens to Joseph. I'll share with you the nutshell uh, what occurs. But Joseph looks back on this time when he's there with his brothers. I mean, he's at the point where he can, he can take it to them. But in Genesis 45... Verse 5, he looks back on this terrible, atrocious sin his brothers do in betraying him. But look how he describes it in verse 5. Now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me 
before you to preserve life. Now, wait a second, Joseph, you're mistaken. You weren't sent here. You were betrayed here. You were sold here by your brother. No, Joseph said, there's a higher work going on. God was in charge. He could have stopped any one of these things. He sent me here to preserve your life. Verse 7, God sent me before you to preserve you for a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. You see something similar in Psalm 105. Verse 16, and looking back at the history, he says, God summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, and he sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. Remember I told you how the story is really about a redeemer, that God's going to bring a redeemer and protecting the line? God used the sin of the brothers to put Joseph in a position where the heritage of, of Jacob, the, the ancestry of, of the line, genealogy line of, of Jacob would be preserved and a redeemer could come. And so we learn a lot about the redeemer here, that God can redeem our past. What does that mean? Things that have been lost to us, things that are useless, God changes them to make them profitable. Isn't it amazing? That is what Chris was sharing, God's grace that is still amazing, that can take your most heinous act. God can make something beautiful out of that. That is beyond anything a human can do. Only God can do such as that. But you know, in this story, we learn a lot about God. God can use sins of others to redeem people wow that reminds me of someone else joseph relatively innocent jesus truly innocent the son of god was falsely accused betrayed slaughtered as a terrorist hung upon a cross with other terrorists scourged beaten beard plucked out Falsely accused. Sins of people. And such an innocent one. But God used that. And said, you know what? That's a terrible thing. It's a sin. It's atrocious. This is because man did that. I'm going to use what they did. And through the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross. I'm going to use that to redeem those same people. And so Jesus' blood was shed to pay the penalty of their sins, of your sins, of my sin. And we'll find, God, you've worked in amazing ways. I look at the story of Joseph. I see God using sin of men and redeeming man with that sin. Satan can't win. The very tools that he tries to kill God and kill Jesus, God only reverses back on him. That's the power of our God. But let me ask you, have you ever committed your life to the Redeemer, Jesus? It doesn't matter your past. In fact, the more atrocious the past, you'll find the more amazing the grace. That God can take your life. and says, I forgive you of your sin. And I don't just forgive you. I'm going to make you useful for the kingdom. And those things that you are so ashamed of can be the very points of greatest use for the kingdom of the Lord. Or you can go on your merry way and say, you know what? No, thanks. That sounds like a bunch of hogwash. I'm not really into all those rules. I want to live my life as I go. 
fine. Be happy for a while. But let me warn you. It's going to have the desired, opposite desired effect in your life. And you'll wish then that you surrendered now to Jesus as your Savior. Let's pray.